Church, Charlotte. Before we begin, um, how, how, how about, um, well, I don't want to put anybody on the spot here too quick. Um, let, let, let's just pray together before we start. Lord Jesus, we are praying that your word would live within our hearts. We are praying, Lord Jesus, that the scripture would be more than just a sort of record from the past that speaks to all generations as if it were simply good advice or uh, memory or reflections or any of the things that represents what humans can do. Lord, let us remind ourselves that the word of God is spiritually rich in the now. It's not just an accordance of men and women's from men and women of faith from the past. It is, it's rich now, and we go to it looking to grow stronger in our faith. Let it live in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, uh, Matthew chapter number two is the story of the birth of Jesus Christ. This is the time of the year, the first couple of weeks of December, where preachers all around the world are leading people anew and afresh through the story of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Well, the context of the season sends us back to the text we are reverencing, and we are reminded year after year after year that there's more in the story than we realize. There's a depth to the story that we scarcely comprehend, we barely scratch the surface of. I caught myself uh, in the first part of the week thinking about how many times the first two weeks of December, the first two Sundays or two Wednesday nights of December, I have told again the story of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I caught myself thinking, I wonder what I can do different this year, as though I have this responsibility to make the story beautiful or make the story powerful. And I quickly rebuked myself. And I was like, no, that's wrongheaded, no matter how you look at it. The story is already beautiful, and the story is inherently powerful. And if we go to the story and are not touched by or moved by it, it's not a problem with the story. It does not speak to the story, but rather it speaks to the conditions and the realities of our heart, do you see? And so it's like uh, one great artist said uh, of people visiting an art museum, and speaking casually of the great works of the human human creativity and saying they didn't like this or that didn't look good. And the great artist said, what people don't understand is when you stand before the best of humanity, you aren't judging it. It's judging you and you have been found wanting. As if to say, just because we cannot appreciate what we're looking at, does not make it more or less than the beauty and the genius that it is. That's how I feel about the word of God. I may or may not understand the words. I may or may not appreciate uh, the gift of it, but the generation, the generations have already spoken and the story is beautiful and the story is powerful. I want to real quickly give you a few points that will serve as a reminder and hopefully uh, will uh, refresh some of the details of the story. Um, because of the counting of the Julian calendar and how the various academic monks and scholars uh, of the first century or the, the first, uh, not century, uh, millennia, the thousand years, not 100 years, the first millennia, because of the way they counted, they meant to have the birth of Jesus on zero, but they miscounted 
uh, some things uh, because of poor records and record keeping. And they actually missed their count to where that Jesus actually is born in the last, the last few uh, perhaps months or at least couple years of the reign of Herod the Great. And that would be in the Julian calendar uh, uh, right about 5 or 4 B.C. And so although their intent was to put historically the birth of Jesus at zero, uh, because of the miscounting, he actually was born probably in that 4 or 5 BC range. Most people settle settle more on a 4 than 5. Um, but this is what we know. In the passing of the Judean throne, now it was under Rome, yes, but Herod the Great was the occupant of that throne. Um, he was older. He was at the end of his life. He had lived a hideous life of cruelty. Um, everything that represents the ugliness of humanity and its political fear and its genocidal violence, uh, he represented that. And when Jesus was born, he was in the decline of his health. He already had the diseases that would eventually kill him. He was al already living every day with profound chronic pain. He was as ugly a villain in the story as you can find. And so in the last days of his reign, Jesus is born. The last months, I should say, um, of his reign, Jesus is born. And there are signs of this. Uh, some of them are easy to ignore. The shepherds reporting angels are easy to ignore. If you would want to know why the shepherds were some of the poorest people of the society, um, they could not, a shepherd had such low, low standing that in many of the nations of the world at that time, a shepherd would not even be allowed to give a witness in a court um, because the word was not trusted. So they were easily ignored. Uh, signs in the heaven uh, are like so many things from God. Uh, they're without interpretation. You have to supply the interpretation by seeking, by searching, by asking, by knocking. Uh, the sign stands alone, so that's not a problem. Uh, it's the wise men coming from the east that really get Herod the Great's attention and cause him to fear. Uh, there is a lot of history um, in the east of seeking a Messiah, and there are several historians that actually wrote about this. Um, Ta Tacitus, um, uh, Suetonius, and Josephus all record of messianic hope that existed at that time to the east over what we would think of as um, Iraq, Iran, and deeper still Afghanistan and the like. This was a messianic hope uh, that was well known by the contemporary historians of the time that I, I refer to their names. They wrote in their recordings of it. So this was known. And when wise men came seeking a king saying, we have seen in the heavens a star that would direct us to him. This gets uh, Herod the Great's um, attention, and he decides to start taking this seriously. He says, go find him, and when you find him, let me know where he is. Um, so Jesus is born. The shepherds are there. Doesn't move the political needle very much. Um, the city of Bethlehem uh, is, is, of course, uh, distracted with the tax demanded. 
by Rome. Uh, it's actually actually more of an accounting of like a census, you would say, of the people so that they could determine who should be paying taxes. And so there, it's full. It's easy to ignore except for the wise men. The wise men have influence and the wise men catch the attention of, of the political powers that be. And yet God sent them anyway. Uh, I think this is an interesting story. And um, when I was thinking about all the sermons I haven't preached from the story, um, this, is, this is one I haven't preached. Um, the Lord knew that sending wise men would raise the risk profile for Joseph and Mary and, of course, baby Jesus. But he sent him anyway. He knew it would cause distress in the land. He sent him anyway. Um, I, I, I don't want us to lose the, the fact that there is, there is a necessary offense in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And why, why would I say that? Um, remember, let me just remember when John the Baptist uh, sends word to Jesus and asks him, you know, um, are, are you the one we're seeking or should we look for someone else? And Jesus immediately before he answers, he basically says this to John, some version of this. This is the NJE version. Um, John, um, there's a blessing in the people who are not offended by me. Um, that's before he gives any answer to John, which was go tell him that the poor are ministered to, the, the, the blind are healed. Before he gives that, he confesses there's an offense because here's the thing. If you make an error and you just, your, your theology is basically this, God loves everybody and he doesn't care what you do. And that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, I have often been criticized as a preacher that all I do is I preach the love of God. Um, I should perhaps try to point out something here. Um, it's, I heard a preacher recently and he was making fun of love preachers and he was saying that, you know, um, you guys just say God loves everybody. And, I, and every time he would say that, I, 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 I shouted back at the radio, <laughs> God does love everybody. He kept going. He went on and on about, you preachers told me, I love God loves everybody. And I kept shouting back, he does love everybody. Well, but he doesn't approve of everybody. See, what the preacher was trying to do by, you know, attacking people who preach the love of God too much by his opinion was he wanted not just grace, he wanted some law in there. Um, he didn't want just love. He wanted some judgment in there. But there's this misunderstanding and there's an error in word choice. God does love everybody. He doesn't approve of everybody. But God can love you without approving of you. Now, this is hard for the believer who secretly believes that the path for religious progress is more law, more control. And this idea of the love of God is irritating to them because they want to control people. Um, they miss the love story that's at the core of the thing. Um, so I, I want to be clear. I preach all the time. God loves you. God loves you. I talk about the love of God. I talk about loving one another. I do not say, I approve of you no matter what you do. I do not say every decision you make, I approve of. Our pastoral team does not say everybody we counsel with, we approve of them. They're all right just as they are. That's not what we're saying. 
We're not saying a love only doctrine. We're saying a love everything doctrine. We're not saying an love equals approval. The Lord, when he judges, will still love. And when the Lord chastised us, he still loves us. And so this moment of John the Baptist, where the Lord starts out saying, but look, don't be offended in me. There is an offense in Jesus Christ. Why is that? Because he claims he's the only way. Now, he can't just be a good teacher and make that claim. Because if that's not true, then he's lying to us. That is the essential offense that is at the core of the gospel. We're not just saying everybody's okay, you're okay, I'm okay. Everybody is loved, everybody's fine. Yes, everybody is loved, but not everybody is right. And just because you're loved doesn't make you right. There is a right response. We can be offended at God. We can judge God. Who does he think he is? Who, who is he to tell me? There is an offense at that. And so it is when I, I see um, the Lord not leading the wise men astray, even though he knew that they were the ones who would scare Herod the Great. Herod could ignore the shepherds. He could ignore the town of Bethlehem. He could ignore the, the law, the prophets that said that it was in Bethlehem. He could ignore the scripture. But when politically influenced, influential people showed up, that got his attention. And that's what starts the ugliness, the crime, the murder, the, the death. And so all of this is happening. Jesus is born, uh, a wise man by now, warned in a dream, go not back to Herod. So Herod doesn't know who, and he, he doesn't know where. What he knows is that they last went to Bethlehem. That's why Herod uh, extends this proclamation that all, everyone under a certain age uh, would be put to death, which is uh, one of the great tragedies and acts of psychopathic malevolence, pure evil um, in the story of, of uh, the Gospels. So this starts this, the, the, the hope of the believer, Christ is born, and the hatred and ugliness of what um, politics and political power can be. It's almost as though when God lays down his power to become an innocent babe that's utterly dependent upon his parents at the same time, uh, humanity is exercising the ugliness of its power as a contrast that this is happening. On the eighth day, here's another message I've never preached. Uh, Jesus is taken to the temple and he is circumcised according to the law of the covenant. You can read about that law in Genesis 17, uh, Leviticus chapter number 12. And this makes him a member of the covenant nation of Israel. And he is named and he becomes what Paul would call in the fourth chapter of the book of Galatians, a son of the law when Jesus is circumcised. And uh, he is now uh, fulfilling that law, a son of the law. And this process of right, order, thanksgiving, and surrender to God continues because on the uh, 41st day, after the birth of Jesus Christ. Remember, he was circumcised on the eighth day. On the 40, 41st day, you can also read about this in Leviticus 12, as far as the law, um, he was 
uh, taken to the temple. Why? Because every firstborn son had to be consecrated for special service unto the Lord. Now, the interesting detail here is that only the tribe of Levi would actually fulfill it, but the firstborn son of the other 11 tribes had to be redeemed from this obligation by a payment of five shekels, an offering that is about the equivalent in modern terms to, you can think, $5, so to speak. Um, this was a symbol to remind the parent that the firstborn, the first fruits, is to be given to God. But God allows you to redeem that back to yourself uh, with this offering unto the Lord. And so the perfect fulfillment, again, this whole story, I didn't, I haven't never preached. You know, this all started the first of the week by thinking about how will I preach it different. So I've spent the last three days thinking about things I've never preached in the story. And I'm just giving you an example here of how much there is in the story. Uh, no, you, you can't preach it all. <laughs> uh, circumcision, becoming a son of the law. He who was a son of the law was also the son of God. And he would transcend the law, not negating it to nothingness, but fulfilling it to its purpose, its telos, its, re its design, its reason for being the son of the law would become the fulfiller of that law. And uh, on the 41st day, he is redeemed from his priestly duties. And again, look at the contrast. This one who is redeemed, excused from his priestly du duties will become the high priest for us all, a better high priest, a more perfect high priest. Don't you love the word of the Lord? I love the word of the Lord. He would become it in a contrast um, he would become our perfect high priest. And here is another thing that is interesting. Um, when Jesus sought to find one to serve as the high priest, when God, let me restate that, when God sought to find the one who would serve as the high priest, he did not seek among the tribe of the Levites, but he went back to the household of David. Because he had told David, I will build you a house. Something about the way David changed what it meant to praise and worship God. So impressed God that God changed the order of his, um, the giving, the roles of his giving. That high priest role had been given to the Levites. But there was something so profoundly transformative in the heart of David that he changed this. And he moved God's heart and God said, I will build, you want to build me a house? I'll build your house. And so he is born from the household of, uh, of Judah, that name, that theme of praise and worship, that household of David, and he will uh, become our high priest. And so here's another message, never preached it. He didn't have to be a priest, but he became our high priest. He had given, the price had been paid for him not to be a priest. His parents had given him the legal right to walk away from his priestly duties. No one forced him to the role. No one took his life, but he lay it down. If I was a good preacher, I'd preach that. Um, and so here is the reality. After 41 days, this fulfillment of the law has taken place. The shekels have been paid. 
and the priest pronounces two blessings over Jesus. Never preach this either. There is the first blessing pronounced um, over uh, over Jesus um, that is, uh, I'm trying to remember here, <laughs> this first blessing. Uh, what is that blessing? Um, I'll remember it here in a minute. I can't remember it right now. There's two blessings, but remember when I remember it, I'll come back to this to this moment. Oh, Thanksgiving. <laughs> the first blessing is uh, a blessing of Thanksgiving for redemption. And the second blessing is a blessing upon the gift of the firstborns. And so here you have uh, the two blessings spoken by uh, the Levites over a 41-year-old baby uh, that has been redeemed from his priestly duties, but even so will become our high priest. On the sideshow, now here's a story I have preached. On the, on, on the side of this happening, there is two people uh, aged uh, and spending the last days of their life at the temple, Simeon and Anna. And they had both lived a devout life of prayer and meditation. And the Holy Spirit had revealed to uh, Simon, uh, I think I, I, I said Simeon earlier, but Simon would be correct that he would not die until he saw, he saw the Lord's anointed. He would not die until he saw the Lord's anointed. And he came into the court of the Gentiles uh, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, the Bible tells us, just as uh, Mary and Joseph enter. And here's what's interesting. The Lord intersects Simon, who has a promise that he will see the anointed of the Lord before he dies. He intersects his path in the court of the Gentiles. He doesn't do it um, anywhere else in the temple, but there they intersect um, as though there is to say this type of uh, thematic beauty, this completion in the story uh, that it would be the Gentiles uh, in the millions who call upon the name, the name of the Lord. Uh, and Simon uh, blessed, blessed, uh, 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 the Lord uh, blessed Jesus. He blessed Mary and he spoke these, um, these beautiful words. If I can find, if I can find here where I'm at, um, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed and a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that the thoughts from many hearts might be revealed so it is uh, with Anna that she is listening to the words of that Simon is speaking, and she bursts out with thanksgiving. Uh, the Bible says at that very moment, this is Luke 2, verse 38, at that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Israel. So there's a community of people that in the last years of their life, they go to the temple every day and there they speak the hope one to another of the redemption of Jerusalem. This is where Anna takes her testimony to this community of people. And she tells them, we have seen the redemption of uh, Jerusalem. And so after this, after these 41 days um, have passed, um, there is, there is uh, the continued rumble and a threat from Herod the Great. And it is after the wise men that uh, the Lord will send word to Joseph to protect 
the baby, baby Jesus. And this is how he ends up in Egypt. It's not too long, though, because remember, Herod the Great is at the end of his life. And when he dies, he goes back, uh, Mary and Joseph and uh, the baby Jesus, they return, they return to they return to uh, Bethlehem. Uh, they return to the place of their homeland. Once Herod the Great has died, his fears dying with him. And so the story uh, is deep and the story is profound. And the story is, uh, no matter how many times you read it, uh, you, will, you will see that there is beauty in it. There's all kinds of uh, theories about the sign in the heavens, the stars, um, the great uh, astronomer Kepler, there's a telescopes named after Kepler. Um, I think they're, up, uh, in, they're in Hawaii. Um, he observed in his study that there was an unusual conjunction of stars um, that would have been, that would have come together based on the movement of, of the heavens uh, around uh, 7 or 6 B.C., And around the same time, there were similar uh, conjunctions of Jupiter and Saturn, and all of this lined up in 6 BC. Mars joined in to uh, this alignment of Jupiter and Saturn and Mars, and uh, a fascinating story. Um, Unnecessary for us to believe in Jesus. We have other uh, cause, good cause to believe in Jesus, but it's interesting how even when an astronomer wants to try to understand the movements of the heavens, um, the story holds together. And uh, so the wise men come and they bring worship. You, you, you know, they drive, it took them a long way to drive to church. <laughs> Our church has some people who drive a long way. Uh, the wise men had a long drive to church. They saw this alignment in the heavens, probably uh, 6, 7 BC. It took a long time to travel from the mountains of Persia uh, down uh, across the wilderness of that area, uh, the howling wastelands between, and then make their way all the way down into uh, Bethlehem of Judea, about six miles south of Jerusalem, also known as Ephraim. Or, um, uh, uh, I'm trying to remember the various pronunciations. Um, this, this, this small place that has even so been graced by God, and they come and they worship with a pure heart. They bring gifts uh, the Lord warns them. The Lord warns Joseph, and this is how this is how uh, the saving of the baby is done. Yes, the Lord could have saved the baby with an angelic host, but that's not His choice. That's not His path. Um, if He's uses power, then how is He different from every empire that's every ever made a, a bloody mess of their generation? Uh, he chooses a different path to influence. And so he warns and deftly uh, the family sidesteps the threat. And uh, Jesus, for a very short time, is, is safe in Egypt. And then he's back, quickly again forgotten. So I want to end, and then we're going to pray together. I want to end with a few questions. Um, notice, notice the reaction, the various reactions that are in the story uh, to the birth of Jesus Christ. There's many characters in the story, and I want you to ask yourself this question. 
um, how, how do I react to the story of Jesus? How do I react to the call of God upon my life? Now, first of all, you see the wise men. There's not many of them, but they will go to extreme lengths to have a chance to make a divine connection. There's also Herod, who he has this false idea that a Messiah being born means God wants to take his power as though God wants something from him, as though he has something God wants, as though God would not have enough power. So he's going to try to take Herod's. So he's threatened by, by Jesus. The town of Bethlehem is indifferent to Jesus. We have people in every generation, they're threatened by Jesus. They are threatened. They, they, who is he to tell me anything? And many, many, many more are indifferent to Jesus. How will we respond? Um, Herod, thinking that God would want something from him rather than Herod wanting something from God, which would have been the right order of things, um, he responds with hatred and hostility. Um, the people at Bethlehem, they respond with indifference. They're just too busy. They're not bad people. And by any social standard, um, they probably in their own way were just common folk. Um, but that is the nature of the great theft of busyness, how busyness robs the most valuable things from us in our life. Too busy, too busy. It's inconvenient. I have other things that I want to do with my life and my time. I would say uh, the greatest thief in the history of the story of humanity is how much is lost to people who are simply too busy to see the better offering, the better gift. Um, too busy. Now, you've heard that preached a lot in the holidays. You've heard Bethlehem called out a lot. Just be reminded and let's not make that mistake. Let's make time. But here you find a very, very small group of people who are seeking out uh, Jesus to worship him. This is the, the, the shepherds and the wise men, two different, um, two different extremes of society. And that this, I haven't never, I've never preached this too, but, but this is, this is, I think a profound story. And this is where I want to end tonight. Why were the shepherds call called? Um, they, they seem to have no status in their society. Uh, they didn't just seem to have no status. Read, read some of the history of the time. They, they had very little status uh, in this particular time, in this particular place. Um, why, why were they called? Uh, the Lord always has a heart for the poor with faith. I think this is one of the reasons why there's so many miracles in the poor nations of the world. And once we get critical and prideful and arrogant, we see many less miracles. The same reason why the shepherds heard the angels announce. The middle class didn't hear. The Lord has a heart for the poor. They are willing to believe. They are not willing to simply argue everything away with the, 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 the blunt force of their rationality. They, they will believe. Um, I, I want to be, I want to have faith that is inflamed uh, when God speaks. I don't want to have faith that is always arguing with God. You see the poor there. They have very little influence. Um, the first world does not care about the revival happening in the other nations of the world. We're largely indifferent. The wealthy have no interest in the revival happening among the poor. But the shepherds are always there. Uh, the poor are called. Um, 
and they believe when they're called and they come and worship. And on the other vast extreme of the spectrum, you have the wise men who are quite wealthy. They are wealthy enough in their status that they can pack up and go on a probably one to two year expedition and everything at home is fine. (laughs) They're wealthy. Um, They have other people running their estates. They have other people. You understand what I'm saying? They, they're, they are very wealthy, successful people who can take two years off to go on a sabbatical Poor people can't do that. And yet there is a hunger in them for God. So, uh, wealth is not the point of the story. The point of the story is hunger for God. Do you see? Um, we live in a very wealthy society, and by uh, the standards of most of the people in the world, all of us are quite, quite wealthy. I know we feel sorry for ourselves, but that's human nature. Um, by the world standards, we are, we are blessed. You have already won by all the standards of most of the people alive or more who have ever lived. Uh, you are you are you are blessed beyond measure but is there also a hunger in your heart to pursue god is there also a hunger in your spirit to pursue god i want to say yes in my spirit i want to be able to be blessed and at the same time say look this this is uh, where is the one who is king of the jews i want to worship him Uh, this is i think uh, the example of hope for uh, the wealthy Christians, and that includes all of us uh, in comparison to all the Christians who have ever lived. Um, is there hope? Yes. If there's something in your heart where you hunger for the eternal, you look to the horizons to see the signs of God. You seek for his star, not just any star, but his star. You look for the wonders that God can reveal. You seek you ask, you knock. What are you doing in this land? I'm looking for the one who was born king of the Jews. I have come to worship him. I want us to pray together. There's multiple themes that uh, I have pointed out for you. And we're going to take a few moments. If you're with other people, I'd like you to maybe pray with them. If you're sitting with others, take their hand, pray with them or whatever works for you in your context. If you're sitting with your family, I'd like us all just to take a little while and we're going to pray some of these themes. And I will, I will as, I, as I pray some of these themes, you might be prompted when you hear me pray a theme. And I want you to feel free to join in um, and you pray that theme um, and where you are. And let's, let's take the word that we've been taught and let's take a few minutes here and let's pray this into our spirit. And please don't just observe. Um, join me. And let's have a time of real spiritual uh, prayer right now uh, all across the metro. Lord Jesus, we are are humbled to think how far you came for us, O God. We are humbled to think just how far you came for us. You could have abandoned us in our arrogance. You could have left us in our sin, but you did not give up on us. You were committed through all the generations of error, pride, absurd forms of religion that lacked the principles and the presence of God until finally having given up on humanity to get it right, having given up on kings and given up on prophets and given up on priests and given up on praise leaders, judges, you even moving beyond patriarchs, you decided you would come for yourself 
and you would do what could not have been done by anyone else. You would speak with the purest word. That is why, Lord Jesus, that in when I am confused, I don't just go anywhere and read anything. I don't just randomly grab some scripture out of the Old Testament as though that is the final end of the matter. I look to you, Lord Jesus. I want to read your words. I want to see you healing the sick. So I go again to those gospels where the story is told. And I consider again, you not speaking through a prophet, but you being a prophet. You not ministering through a priest, but you becoming the high priest. That is why the writer could say, uh, sharing with us your testimony and your words that that you truly are the way. You're not just a guide to the way, you are the way. You are life, real spiritual life, not just an advisor to us to find life, but you are life. Lord Jesus, and finally, you are truth. You're not just one who shows us the truth or teaches us the truth. You are the truth. And so we look to you like those wise men. We seek you. We are blessed, Lord, to have many of the things that the vast, vast majority of people who have never, who have, have lived never had. Um, we, are well, we are wealthy compared to all the Christians who gave their lives for their faith. But Lord Jesus, in spite of that, we want to be motivated to seek you out. We're not content just to count our blessings. We're looking, we're watching the horizons for the signs of God. We are looking in the heavens for the very signs of God, the star to lead us, the word to guide us. Lord, we are hungry today. We are seeking. We are desirous. We are in, we're not happy to just celebrate what we have and, and, and where we have somehow arrived. And we're not even allowing ourselves to stand in a religious vanity of, of uh, something to argue with someone about. We seek you. We don't want to have the vanity of someone who has decided they are a holder of the final truth. We are a seeker of you. You are our truth. The generations change, the, the manner of sin changes, the temptations of the flesh changes, the addictions of the human story change, but God, you do not change, and we seek you. And having found you, we want to worship you with a pure, a pure heart, God. We're going to show up, and we're going to worship. We're going to show up, oh Lord, and we're going to worship. We might have to walk for a while, but we're going to show up, and we're going to worship. It might be cold as we travel. We might go through storms in the wilderness, but we are looking for the one who is born king of the Jews. We bring everything we have. We bring everything we are. We bring ourselves to you, oh God. We can't really give you anything you don't have because it's all yours, but we give you us. You gave us sovereignty of choice. You gave us the right to refuse you. You gave us the right to rebuke you, to judge you, to dismiss you, to mock you. We give ourselves back to you, Lord Jesus. We seek to know you. We seek to serve you. We seek to please you. And we seek to protect what you are birthing in us. All of us are becoming, all of us are challenged to become who we can be in you. We seek to protect what you are birthing in us. There are habits we can develop that will destroy what you are birthing within us. There are influences in our, in, in our life that will endanger uh, what you are birthing within us, God. The world, as it could be through our prayer and influence, exists. But if we turn away, 
we will be less than what was needed in the moment to help and bless and strengthen others. God, we commit today to protect what you are birthing in us. There's always those who don't understand, so they will casually criticize and even destroy. There's always those who disagree, so they will casually uh, criticize and destroy in spite of the warnings you placed in the scripture, like uh, to, to, to offend a little one, it would be better if we had a millstone tied around our neck and cast into the sea. In spite of those kind of warnings, there's people that because they aren't in command of their spirit and they aren't in any discipline of their heart in their way, they will hurt, they will harm. There are unbelievers that will hurt and they will harm. There is church hurt people who are determined to hurt the church back. They will hurt and they will harm. We want to protect what you are birthing in us. We're thankful for every new heart that is striving towards you, Lord Jesus. We're thankful for every individual that is striding toward you. We're thankful for the new believers that are coming. We're thankful for the first generation apostolics that are coming. Lord Jesus, we will protect what you are birthing in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Use us for your glory. Anoint us for your kingdom. Direct us on your mission. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all. We love you. Uh, we're thankful for what the Lord is doing uh, in our life, in our families. There's a lot of great testimonies that I'm hearing on a regular basis, uh, doors that are being opened. I'm excited about it. Uh, if, if it works out, I'll tell you more about that. We love you. God bless you. Your mics are back on. You can greet one another before you go. Thank you for joining us for Bible study. Have a great week. We're going to see you Sunday, 9, 15 or 11 a.m. It's going to be a great day. God bless you. Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If this podcast has blessed you, please rate it with four or five stars. By doing so, you will help others find our free podcast and bless them. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, come worship with us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road. For information about service times, church ministries, and so much more, visit us online at firstchurchclt.com. If you would like to help support our efforts, please text GIVE to 704-445-5353. We pray God's richest blessings to you. Come worship with us.